0: Well good morning. We're coming to a very interesting passage here in 1st Corinthians chapter 9, a very very interesting passage, a passage which I would not normally preach if it wasn't the fact that we're preaching this systematically and and also um, uh, the, the following sequential order of 1st Corinthians. We've been in 1st Corinthians for the last 4 or 5 months and we're arriving 1st Corinthians chapter 9 and is about an authentic minister and what a think the minister should receive from the church. It is an important passage, important passage for me in assessing what is my role here in the church and what is us here as pastoral staff, our role here in the church, and, and also what is the role of the church to lead and to, or to support those who are officially serving here in pastoral roles. Let's read in First Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1 through 14. It says this, Am I not free? am not an apostle, have not seen Jesus our Lord. Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife and do other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of its milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? What is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher shall threshing hope of sharing in the crop. We have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much that we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Let's bow in the word prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the straightforwardness of your word. We thank you, Lord, that there's much for me to learn as a pastor, as a minister of this church, as a result of this word. And we pray, Father, that as we are coming to your word now as a congregation, we would learn to apply what it is that you are teaching us here this morning. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness in us, and we thank you, Lord, for the faithfulness of the people who are gathered here this morning, as well as people who are part of this church. We thank you, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. What is authenticity? Merriam-Webster dictionary defined authenticity as something which would have the quality of being actually exactly what is claimed. What is authentic is what it is claimed to be. It is something that has been unaltered, something that is in its original state, and something that is of significance. Something that's authentic will be valuable if it is significant in its own right. I used to watch a pawn shop show, and in this pawn shop, you have a pawn shop owner who's always receiving odd items to be sold in the pawn shop. People will bring a handgun and say, this handgun was used during the Civil War period and by this particular general, and people don't really know whether that is true or not, so this pawn shop owner will call in a particular historian of the Civil War period and say, well, is that true or not? What do you think? And if it is true, if the handgun was certainly used by this particular general, then that handgun would certainly be worth a lot of money. Others will bring a necklace and say, well, this necklace was worn by this British queen, and uh, this British queen wore this necklace during this period, and certain this pawn shop owner would not know whether that's true or not. So again, he will bring an expert to examine the claims of this particular individual that this necklace was worn by this British queen. Others will bring a document and say, well, this document was signed by this famous individual, the person would not know whether that is true or not, so a signature expert we be brought in, and signature expert would verify whether this person who is famous indeed has signed this document. If that is true, that document will be one of a kind and certainly would be very, very valuable. And so something which is authentic is valuable, but not only something which is authentic, something which is significant. And certainly because of the definition, we are also very valuable in God's eyes, as you know. We're valuable before God because we were authentic as He is authentic. We are also as significant because He made us. Our God is authentic. Our God is significant. He's authentic and significant in the sense that He's pure and holy and there's no one like Him. He is significant and authentic in a sense that He has nothing to hide. He's pure and holy. There's no two sides to God. He's one. He is who He says He is. First John chapter 1, verse 5, it says, God is light, and in Him there's no darkness at all. God is light. There's nothing in Him that would demonstrate Him to be another person in which He has not already revealed Himself to be. He is pure. He is holy. In the very beginning, we we're made to be like Him. We we're made to be authentic. We we're made to be holy as He is holy. We're significant because we're made in His image. We're significant because we have that perfect Relationship with our God. Our God is holy and righteous, and we were made to be holy and righteous, and we're significant in that way. However, in that very beginning, our significance was tarnished. It's tarnished in the sense that we have walked away from God, we have sinned against God, we have not taken God's glory seriously. God made us to be like Him, and instead of following God's will for our lives, we followed Satan. We follow the other desires. We follow our own selfish ambitions, our own pride, our fleshly desires. As a result of that, we have sinned against God. And when we sin against God, what happens is, is that we're no longer authentic before our Lord and Savior. We hide from God. We hide our sins from God. In the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, God cried out to the garden. And not in the sense that God doesn't know who they, where they are. He knows where they are at, but he's proving a point. He said in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, where are you? And what were men doing? Adam and Eve were doing this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. It says that they were hiding from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So humanity was hiding from God because of their sins. No longer are they authentic before the Lord in a pure and holy relationship, and no longer are they as who they were meant to be. They deserve judgment. deserve the judgment from a holy and the righteous God, because our God's authentic. He will reveal everything according to His perfect will, according to perfect light which is in Him. According to Luke chapter 8, verse 17, it says, nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is there anything secret that will not be known and come to light. We will be exposed. All of our sins will be exposed. Things that we did wrong and things that we did right, however, Because we're not perfectly holy as God is holy, that is the perfect requirement. We fell short of that. We will be judged according to our sins. Our God, however, is love. He is love. Even though He's perfectly holy and righteous, He is love. In His love, He is making a way to save us from our sins. Even though we rebel against Him, He is embracing us, loving us, through the Son, Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus, He came to earth, gave His perfect life to us. He lived as a perfect man. Even though He is that perfect God, He lived as a perfect man to represent us before God. And He gave His perfect righteousness to us. He died on the cross to pay for the punishment that is ours because we deserve God's holy judgment. And He rose again from the dead to show us that there's eternal life to be lived in Him. He died and rose again to show us that if we die, if we believe unto Him, we will also rise again from the dead. This is the promise of God. All that we need to do is to come clean before the Lord. We need to be authentic before God and cry out to God and understand and admit to God, confess to God that we're sinners before Him, that we need His salvation, we need His grace, and we need His mercy, and that grace and mercy will be given through the Son, Jesus Christ. He will forgive us, claim us as His own. He will give us a brand new resurrected heart. We no longer crave for the things that is of the that way that we used to, crave for the things of our sins in the past, but rather in our inwardmost desire, we want to serve God, we want to glorify Him. That will be the primary desire of our hearts and of our lives. That comes from a resurrected heart. This is the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we believe unto Him, we can live in that authentic relationship with Jesus. Not that we're perfect. Christians are not perfect by any means. We're not. We're not sinless. But we are authentic in the sense that we confess up our sins. We commit to God that we're sinners and can receive God's grace and mercy, knowing that we're forgiven as we admit that we need His grace. This is the authenticity of those who are Christians. We are authentic before our Lord, before our God. And here in 1 Corinthians chapter eight, rather chapter nine, verse one through 12, we're gonna read about the particular person who is authentic before God. His name is Paul. He's gonna share his heart as a Christian. As a pastor, as an apostle, his relationship with God and his relationship to the church. See, for those of us who are believers in Christ, we're to serve God with authentic heart, out of purity, out of love, out of affection for Jesus. However, as ministers, we're even more to do the same because God has called us as ministers to serve God from a pure heart. We're an example for the flock. We're the ones which are leading the flock we're the under-shepherds for the Lord Jesus Christ. According to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2 to 3, it says that we're to shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising overright, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those who are in our charge, but being example to the flock. We're not going to dominate over them, but rather serve the flock of God with love and compassion, with a pure heart. So here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 1 through 12 we're going to read about a certain man. A certain man who is revealing his heart as a minister of God and he's going to demonstrate that he's the authentic minister of God. The three marks, three marks of those who serve God who are authentic. The first mark is this. An authentic authentic minister is first called by God. An authentic minister is first called by God. We see this verse 1 through 2, Paul says, in God's Word, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? And if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. As we come to this passage, we're coming to a portion of Apostle Paul's instruction to the Corinthian church. To the Corinthian church, has been instructing them for a period of time now, and really a period of time for us is that five months will be in this book. But he's been in chapter one to chapter nine so far. Throughout these chapters, he's been instructing the Corinthian church a variety of issues, a variety of issues including unity, a variety of issues including pride and humility, how the church is to function in such a way that they're not about themselves but about each other, about being humble with each other and caring for each other, and not. Elevating yourself against another person. He's been instructing them on the issue of sexuality. What does it mean to live a sexually pure life? He's been instructing them on issues such as marriage and singleness. Whether you're married or you're single, is their responsibility which God has given to you. He's been instructing them on the issue of Christian freedom. We saw this a couple weeks ago. How you operate in Christian freedom determines or is determined by your love for the body of Christ. Still, when we come to 1 Corinthians, here in this passage, we're seeing Apostle Paul's authority being questioned. The reason why his authority is being questioned is because there are a lot of teachers here in this church. A lot of teachers were claiming to have authority over God's people. This is in the very, very beginning as well. We saw this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5. Apostle Paul actually commends this church for being enriched in all speech, in all knowledge. It's a church that knows a lot. And also in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15, they said that they have many guides and many teachers in Christ in this church. And this church is a church that's full of teachers that were coming in, They were teaching the people. As a result of that, people were saying, well, we could follow this teacher, we could follow that teacher. I could follow Paul, I could follow Paulus, I could follow Cephas, I could follow this other pe- people who are coming. Why should I listen to you, Paul? Why should I consider your advice, your instruction as important? And Paul here is demonstrating to them that the reason why they should do so is because he is an apostle. He should be listened to. And the reason why he has not forced upon his apostleship or forced his apostleship or made authority known by force unto them is because he loves and cares for them. He is actually giving up his rights to care for them. He's simply coming to them with a heart of humility. Everything he does is because he loves this church. It says in verse 1, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord Jesus? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? He's proven to them that he loves them. He starts out with this phrase, am I not free? And this is a continuation of what we saw a couple of weeks ago when he was talking about Christian freedom. There are food offered to the idols. Some people are having trouble eating food offered to the idols. Others are saying, you know what? It's okay for me to eat food offered to the idols because ultimately these idols don't exist. Ultimately, it's God who I worship." 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, it says this, As to eating to the food offered to the idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, that there is no God but one. He says to them, hey, idols have no real existence. The reason why an idol has any power over you is because you attribute to a power. But if you don't attribute to a power, God is the one who is overall. You don't have to worry about whether you're offering, eating this food offered to the idols or not. But there are some brothers who actually came from the background of this demonic activity, and they really, really struggle with the fact that some people in the church are eating food offered to the idols. And Paul says, because there are people in the church who struggle with this, we're not going to eat food offered to the idols. We're going to refrain from it for the sake of love for the brothers in the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 13 says this, if food makes my brother stumble, I would not eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. I care for my brother. I love my brother. I want my brother to do well. I don't want my brother to stumble in his or her faith or a sister to stumble in her faith, I'm not going to eat food offered to idols in front of them because I know that will make them stumble. So out of my love for them, I will make a sacrifice, even though it is my right to eat food, whatever food is in front of me. Now, eating food offered to idols is a very, very small thing compared to what he's going to mention now. Because Paul is going to say, as an apostle, I'm due certain rights. Here in this passage, we're going to actually read about him saying, that as an apostle, I have the right to be supported financially by the people of the church, but I'm going to forego that right. I'm not going to claim my right upon you. I'm going to do something even more than what is my right, what is dictated by my right. But before I go there, I must convince you that I am an apostle. I am do that right so that you can understand that the sacrifice I make is actually a real sacrifice. It's a real sacrifice so he says in verse 1 am i not an apostle have i not seen jesus our lord he says i'm an apostle i am an apostle i have seen jesus our lord now here is the word that many denominations sort of loosely thrown around the people call themselves apostles in various denominations i'm an apostle and really it's a glorified term to indicate somebody who has some kind of level and authority in their denomination this should not be so the word apostle If biblically defined, we have to know that this is a special position that God has given to special men in ministry. Specifically, apostles are people who have seen Jesus in person and have received direct revelation from Jesus as a ministry of Jesus Christ himself so that they themselves are passing that direct revelation to people who are here on earth who are Christians. So apostles are actually somebody Jesus personally taught, and therefore they give out what Jesus personally taught to the people of this world. Apostle simply is not somebody who has authority in a denomination. An apostle, biblically, is somebody who has authority over all the Christians in the world. That's an apostle. Whether Baptist, Pentecostal, whatever, an apostle literally has authority. The authority over all the Christians because these are the people Jesus specifically taught. They have seen Jesus and Jesus specifically revealed his authority, his direction to these men. And thereby they are speaking on behalf of the Lord. So given that definition, a lot of folks who are themselves apostles these days do not meet this requirement. Actually, I would say prophets. and all of them do not meet this requirement. They're simply using a glorified term. For their denomination but peter stated clearly the requirement for apostleship in Acts chapter 1 verse 22 when judas died another person needed to be raised up to become one of the apostles he said this must be the requirement in Acts chapter 1 verse 22 he says this beginning from the baptism of john until the day when he was taken up from us one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. This is the requirement of the apostle. You must have seen the risen Lord, and you must have sat under the ministry of Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry from the baptism of John till the day that he was taken up. It's a very strong requirement. Most of us aren't going to admit this, and I know none of us are going to admit this, but apostle Paul did Apostle Paul, even though he was not there in Jesus' earthly ministry, he actually sat under Jesus' ministry because Jesus specifically revealed his word, his will to Apostle Paul after he resurrected. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7-8, through 8, Apostle Paul said this, Then he appeared to James, that Jesus appeared to James, and to all the apostles, and last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And he later says, I am also an apostle, compared to the rest. The Apostle Paul is an apostle. He's seen the Lord Jesus Christ. He's one who is untimely born. He's born after Jesus resurrected, but he is the one who has received direct revelation from God, direct revelation from Jesus, taught by Jesus himself. According to Galatians chapter 1, verse 12, he said this, the gospel which he preached was not received from any man nor was I taught it by any man, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus personally discipled Paul through special revelation. So Paul says, I am an apostle. You need to recognize the role which I am so that you can recognize that I'm making great sacrifice for you here in this church. Treat me as I am, he says. Verse 1, he says this, are you not my workmanship in the Lord also? He's proving to them that he's an apostle. If other people don't recognize that Paul is an apostle, the Corinthian church should, because the Corinthian church is here. As a result, of Apostle Paul ministering to the church, actually planting this church. The word apostle literally means sent once. He's sent to this place. He planted this church. His work is a manifestation of his apostleship, Therefore, it says in verse 2, If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. The reason why you're here, the reason why you're church, is because I am called to an apostle. You are the evidence of my apostleship. You should recognize this. And I should be confident in the role of my apostleship. Now, none of us here are apostles. Certainly, I'm not an apostle. I'm a pastor. And a pastor is different from an apostle. A pastor is someone who receives what the word of God says and teaches what the word of God says. This is the word which you all have before you. I'm the one who leads and guides as God calls to the church. Yet this confidence which Paul has in his role is something that pastors could relate to. The role of pastors is extremely important in the health of the church. When a church has a healthy pastor, has a good pastor, the church flourishes When the church doesn't have a good pastor or the healthy pastor or church has a pastor who's leaving, the church is on a decline. For all the years I've been ministry, I've never, ever seen a church where the pastor leaves the church and the church does better. The church usually is on a decline after the pastor leaves because the pastor is called by God to minister, to teach, and to guide the church. He's of essential function. It's not just something that's extra that comes to the church. He is essential function of the church according to 1 Timothy chapters 3. One of the essential elements of a church is a pastor, an elder of the church to teach and guide and to lead the church. This is specifically seen in the illustration of Acts chapter 8. We have gone through Acts chapter 8 in our second service of, the, uh, of the Sunday, and there's a story about Philippi- Philip the evangelist and also the Ethiopian eunuch. Think about that story. Ethiopian eunuch is there riding the chariot, right? He's riding the chariot, he's reading the book, he's reading the book of Isaiah, 53. And according to Acts chapter 8, verse 32, it says this. Now, the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb, before a shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. He's reading this passage. And there's Philip, who sent by God to go to Ethiopia after the persecution of the Jerusalem church. And you know what Philip asked him? Acts chapter 8, verse 30. Do you understand what you are reading? And what did the Ethiopian eunuch say? Verse 31. How can I? Unless what? Unless someone guides me. This is the work of a pastor. A pastor is to guide the church, lead the church. Now, many of you are working secular jobs, working 30, 40 hours a week, and you're you're doing these things. And and, and perhaps you read the Bible, and there's some questions about the Bible, and you need answers to because you need to know how to apply the word of God to your lives. Now, a pastor is not the one to do the work of God for you. He's not. Is not one to minister for you. You are the ministers of God. The whole church are ministers of God. But a pastor is the one to guide the church to understand what is the will of God for the life of individual members of the church. So you read the Bible, you read the Bible, and you say, you know what, I don't really understand what this means. You could take it to a pastor, and pastor, as we see here in Acts chapter 8, verse 31, is to guide you. Guide you to understand the word of God. Guide you to understand how the word of God applies to your life. And that means the pastor must be fully dedicated to their job, to their work. Their work is essential. Their work requires full-time ministry. I hardly would see a bivocational pastor doing that for the rest of their lives. It's hard. Apostle Paul can do it. Other people can do it. But the reality is that for most people, they're not able to do it. They need to focus on studying the Word of God, focus on counseling, focus on doing some kind of conflict resolution here in the church, focus on teaching and walking alongside with the people of the church so that they may understand God's will. And that is a full-time job. If a pastor is working 30, 40 hours a week in some kind of regular job and coming to church, he's not gonna be like an Ethiopian eunuch. The, the Philip is in interaction with the Ethiopian eunuch. If Philip sees the Ethiopian eunuch, he's gonna run to the Ethiopian eunuch and say, What are you reading? If a pastor's dead tired, he just go home. He'll be with his wife, be with his kids. He doesn't have time to be with the congregation. So the role of the pastor is important. It requires full time, commitment. Commitment. And if we understand this, we would appreciate a pastor for having that full-time commitment. It's not just something that, oh, you know, you know I remember talking to a person and he says, I don't really know what pastors do. So what do you think pastors do? I told you something in that story, right? Oh, I don't know. I think they just pray and walk around some, you know, around the church all day. It's not. There's a lot. Counseling, bearing burdens, talking, I mean, reading the Word of God and uh, counseling people reading the Word, studying the Word, teaching Bible studies. There's a lot. And there's a reason why pastors quit. It was so easy. Why would pastors quit? During the three the four years I've been here, and this is just a segment of ministry. I've been in Los Angeles since 1999. I've seen many pastors quit their church, many. Even the three or four years I've been here, I've seen three or four pastors here in this this area that quit their church. Why? Why are they quitting if it's so easy? It is not. It is not easy. Because why? Because Satan is seeking to attack churches. And the way that Satan attacks churches, is successfully attacking churches, is by striking the shepherd. During not 120 years of the history of this church, this church has seen 20 pastors. 20. And that's not a good thing. Not a good thing. There is a pastor who's been here for 30 years. And if you count Dakota's dad, he's been here for nine years. So if you take them out, each pastor literally was here for about three to four years and quit this church. Why? Because Hollywood is a place that Satan wants to have his own. And the fact this church stands here in the middle of Hollywood is evidence of God's grace, but also an evidence of the fact that Satan wants to destroy this place. He wants this building to be sold to Scientology. He wants this building to become a community center. And the way that he does so is by knocking off the pastor. So the church is just full of few people, and, and the few people just are, are clammed up. They don't want to do the work of ministry. They're, they're, they're directionless. As Jesus says, to strike the shepherd, the sheep scatters. This is the history of many churches here in Los Angeles. So pastors need to watch their lives, have a vital relationship with Jesus. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 16 says this. Pastors, what we need to do is this, and is instructing Timothy, he says, you need to keep a close watch on yourself and on teaching. Persist in this, and by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Pastors need to have an authentic and vital relationship with God. He needs to focus on his own life, living a pure life with Jesus, honest life with Jesus. And he also needs to watch the doctrine which he teaches. If you do so, you will last. It's my desire. My desire that as long as you're in the city or before the Lord takes you home, and I say this so honestly, that I will be your last pastor. I pray that. I do pray that. Pastors need to watch their lives. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 says this. We're to do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word truth. So, the pastor role is extremely important. It is to be taken seriously because not only is pastor called by the congregation, all of you call me if you're members, you voted in for me to be here. But ultimately, this church is not your church. This is the church of Jesus Christ. The reason why I'm here is not because ultimately you voted for me to be here, the reason why I'm here is because God called me to be here. God selected a particular man to lead his church for a particular Period of time, and I pray that I will be able to do so by the grace of God for a long period of time, only by the grace of God. It's not by me, but by the grace of God. So here we see the first characteristic of a authentic minister. A authentic minister must realize that his role is given by God, is called by God. This is the second characteristic. A authentic minister also must realize that he's provided by God, he's provided by God, and the way that he, the provision comes is through God's people. We're going to see this verse 3 to 12. He says this, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living, who serves as a soldier at his own expense, who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit, who tends a flock without getting some of the milk, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman shall plow in hope and the thresher threshing hope of sharing in the crop. You have sown spiritual things among you. Is it too much that we read material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you. Do we not even more? Now Paul As Paul shares, the fact that he's called by God he's also revealing to them that as one was called by God to minister to a particular church, he has a rightful claim to be supported by the church that he ministers to. This is specifically seen in verse 3 to 4, where he says, This is my defense to those who examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Of course he does. Now, he's not talking about that he can't just eat and drink and just eat and drink. Obviously, all of us have the right to eat and drink. He's talking about, do we not have the right to take from the church financially, to be supported by the church so that we can eat and drink? He can eat and drink whatever he wants. This, the only case that stops him is if you have the money to eat and drink. So Paul says, you know, the work of ministry is hard. It is hard. It is like any other work. It is hard work. It's something that you pour yourself in. I'm working 60 to 80 hours a week, right, working in the, in the work ministry. I'm always working. As a pastor, you don't stop. People's problems don't stop. They're calling you in the middle of the night. That doesn't stop. Middle of the night, you're two or three in the morning sometimes. I'm there. So it never stops. So it is work, but it is not a work that plays in the world economy. See, so I don't go out there and sell my job, or sell my service. I don't, and I can't because it's not a work of material nature. It is a work of spiritual nature. So how do pastors eat and drink? Well, it's obviously going to be by the support of the congregation who they serve. That is what he's saying. We have the right to eat and drink. Not only so, verse 5, we have a right to raise a family. Verse 5 says this, Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and of Cephas? He's not talking about whether you can get married or not. Paul already made sure of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You get married, you not get married, it's your choice as long as you do it for the Lord. You can get married if you want to. You don't get married, you don't want to get married, you don't have to. But you have a right to get married. And what Paul is saying is this, if I get married, there is more support that church has to give for my wife. See, as a single person, I could really scale down. I could just live in a hole in the wall, eat ramen noodle all day long, right? And cost the church nothing for me to just serve here, just pour my life out. And Paul does that. Paul says, I'm not married. I'm pouring myself out for you for the church. But Paul says this also. If you are burning with passion, you have a desire to get married, you should get married. And the reality is that some pastors do want to get married because they're burning with passion. So they get married. They take on a believing wife. They come to a church. And now the church not only has to support him, he has to support his wife, who he also needs to eat. And also the family will come alongside with that. And Paul says, do we not have a right to do that as other brothers of the Lord? And of Cephas and other apostles, they also do that. Cephas had a wife. Other brothers of the Lord were married. And they were carrying their wife or taking their wife alongside with them in ministry. the ministry which is support uh, which their ministry support them. Paul says, Is this not what I could do? I could do so. But it's a right which he had given up. Verse 6, it says this: it's only not barnabas, and that we have no right to. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living. Everywhere Paul went, he was working for a living. He was a tent maker. Barnabas likely was with him the whole time. Did not want to be a burden to his churches. But he didn't have to do so. He could certainly ask for financial support, but he didn't. He loved the church and cared for the church and not want to be a burden to the church. In verse 7, he's going to give three illustrations, worldly illustrations in this world that is, of why pastors deserve wages. It says this, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? The first illustration about soldiers. If you're a soldier, who are you gonna go to to get your helmet, get your gun, get your sword, get your shield, whatever, right? Who are you gonna go to? The government that sends you out to fight for the government or to fight for the people. The government taxes the people so that they can give you the equipment that you need in order to fight. Which soldiers serve at his own expense? no one so god being the good god he certainly could take people who the soldier or the pastor is serving to provide for the pastor also regarding farmers who plants a vineyard without eating any of his fruit if you're a good owner you allow those who are farming to partake in the labor the fruit of the labor and also a shepherd who tends a flock without getting some of his milk if you're owner of a particular flock and under shepherds are shepherding in a flock, certainly under shepherds are able to take some milk. If you're a good owner, and our God is a good owner. So he will allow those who work hard in the ministry to take some of the milk. And these are just worldly illustrations, how the world functions. But that's not all that Paul will mention because Paul is going to give you some biblical illustrations now in the Old Testament. Verse 8 through 9 says, Do I say these things on human authority? I'm not just saying these things because that's how the world functions. I'm saying these things because that's what the law of God also says. Does not the law of God say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while he treads out the grain. Is it for oxen God is concerned? Paul is saying this, and God is saying this. You should not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, this is from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. You shall not muzzle and ox while it's treading out the grain. This is talking about the Egyptian practice that later on was picked up by the Israelites. What they would do literally is that they would tie a big gray stone to the ox. And now in front of the ox, they would lay a bunch of grain. And you know, grain by itself, it has to be processed. The way you process it is that you have to break open the husk to reveal the grain that's inside, the brain that's inside in order so that you could use that material Uh, for your for eating or to sell in the marketplace the husk itself is not edible you have to break that open so the way that you break that open is by having a oxen drag this great white stone or great big stone around this field so that this stone could crush the husks and reveal the inside of this grain Paul says this and God says this while the ox is doing it do not put a muzzle on the ox If you put a muzzle on the ox, the ox won't eat whatever is on the ground, the grain. So if the ox is working so hard to make this work, you should at least allow the ox to take a bite here and there. That's what God is saying. Let the ox take a bite here and there. This principle is also seen in the Old Testament regarding the Levites who are serving among God's people. In Numbers chapter 18, verse 21, it says to the Levites have given every tithe in Israel for inheritance, return for the service they do, their service in the meetings. See, people give, give for the work of ministry to support the livelihood of those who are serving. When we come to the New Testament, we're seeing the example of Levites apply to those who are ministering officially, official roles as pastors or other ministerial staff in the church. Verse 10 says this, does he not certainly speak for our sake was it written for our sake? It was written for our sake because plowmen shall plow in hope and thresher threshing hope of sharing in the crop. If you're plowing, if you're threshing, if you're working in the field of God, you should have hope. Now I understand the hope is that we are going to see the church grow. That is a reward in itself. Blessed be the Lord when the church does grow. But when the church does grow, there is an attitude that God says that plowmen should have and can have which is that he's able to share in the crop. What that means is this. When the church is small and you're plowing, you're threshing, you know that you're making sacrifices. I was a part of the church plan for a number of years. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard because you're a small congregation. It's hard because there are money that must go to other places in the ministry. And every time you take money to feed your own family, you're taking money away from ministry, which you thought maybe if I do this with the ministry— That would make the ministry grow, but then your family is here struggling. Now, it's hard for a lot of church planters. I've seen this. And so you're kind of burning candlestick from both ends. So if the church does grow, Paul says, you should have this hope. You should have a hope of sharing in the crop. That's okay for you to have that. It's okay to know that as the church grows, as the function of the ministry are being fulfilled, as people are coming in and they're more giving For the church, and as the church functions are being fulfilled, that you as a pastor is able to take care of family that much better. Again, I'm not sharing this in the sense of saying that our church doesn't do this. Our church does tremendously for us as pastors and and ministerial staff who's here. Okay, we do tremendously, and I will say this later on. We have made sacrifices, and I think our church do a great job. But the reality is that for Many pastors here in our country, many pastors in L.A., this is what they're struggling with for many years. And in verse 11, verse 12, it says this, You have some spiritual things among you. Is it too much that we read material things from you? Spiritual things are far more valuable than material things. Far more valuable. So if pastors doing a valuable work, is it not reasonable that the church should support them with material things? And in verse 12, if others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? You see, the Corinthian church struggles with so much what our church or churches in America currently struggles with. A good pastor is not the one to ask for money. He doesn't. He just simply sacrifices and knows that God's going to provide. But a bad, bad minister, a false prophet, is the one who does ask for money. In fact, you see them all over the place in the prosperity gospel denominations or region. Where they're saying, you know what? Give this ministry. Sow a seed of $500. Sow a seed of $10,000. Sow a seed of this and that. And you will have great health. You have a car. You have a house. You have this and that coming your way. Now, they don't care. They're just speaking to a crowd. They don't know you personally. Whatever happens, happens. They don't really care whether you have a house or wife or kids or whatever. Or whatever it is that you want to have when you sow the seed. What they do care about is that if that money becomes theirs. That your money becomes theirs. And so they're just asking for money all over the place. And the Corinthian church is experiencing this because they say, you know what? People are asking for money, so I'll give them money. While the reality is that the good pastors who don't ask for money, but they're struggling. And Paul says this, do we not even more deserve your giving? You need to think about it. You need to think about the People who don't ask for money probably are the ones who truly need it. Truly need it. This is the pastoral role. The pastoral struggle. Now Paul is being very vulnerable here. Very vulnerable. But like, there's no easy way to teach this. It's like teaching people, you know what? This is your responsibility, but I'm not asking this for my sake. And he's going to say this later. It's not about me, but it's about you, that you need to learn this. You need to know this. It's like teaching your children to honor their parents. I'm not doing this for my sake. I'm doing it because you need to do this for the Lord. You do this for the Lord. In fact, you will not and cannot pay a good pastor too much money. I say this. The reason why is this. I share with you one very practical reason and very understandable reason why you would not be able to pay a good pastor too much money. Number one, because he will not take it. Because he will not take it. If he doesn't need it, he will not take it. He sees what the church needs and he says, you know, I don't need this money. Keep it at the church. Keep it for the ministry. You know, every year we come to this decision, right? Every year we decide, we look at the budget and look at, okay, how much giving we have and how much giving we give to the minister or staff who are here. Every year, we do this, and I pray. I tell you this, honestly speaking, it's my prayer journal. I pray for every single ministerial staff who is paid here almost every day that their finances will work out. I pray every day for them. I have this in my prayer journal that the finances of the people who are ministering here will work out. So it's in my heart all the time that the people who are serving here, giving up their time, will be provided for by God, and they don't have to be distracted by the fact, or by anything, I mean, as much as they can, by, by, by whatever they don't have, and that they need, and have to go borrow money or go somewhere else. I pray for that. But I also know a good minister or staff is not the one who takes money, because I have this conversation with people. I remember having this conversation with one individual, and I was just sitting down with this person. This person being been serving God for such a long time, faithfully, giving all of her hours, just serving the Lord, but being paid very little. And I said, you know what, we... We need to consider this. I want to propose that we pay you more. I propose that we give you more, more money for your work. You know what she said? No. No. No, 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 no. Keep it for the church. Keep it for the church. See, a good ministerial staff simply are not doing this for the money. We're not. We're doing this because we love the Lord. We're doing this because we need to eat, but we're not doing it because we want to get rich. In fact, that's what Jesus taught this is not a place to get rich, according to Matthew chapter 10, verse 9 through 11. If you minister, you acquire no gold or silver or copper for your bills, no bag for your journey, no two, or two tunics, or sandals, or staff, for the labor deserves its food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who's worthy in it and stay in there until you depart. Jesus says this, you know, don't, don't be overly concerned about gathering wealth. Just know that God's going to provide for you through the people you minister to. He will. But God does provide through the people that you minister to. In fact, we see this in Philippians chapter 4, verse 14 to 16. It says It was kind of you to share in my trouble. That is Paul saying to the Philippian church who gave him some money. And you, Philippians, yourself know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. No church gave to me financially except you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So he said in Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. They gave me to him again. And Paul is almost saying, you know what, thank you. But he's not really saying thank you. He's saying, I thank God. He never asked for money. Throughout the entire books of the Paul, Paul's letter, you will not see him asking for money. He doesn't. He will ask money for other people. He asks money for other people like the saints in Jerusalem, but he will not ask money for himself. He never does, never has as we see in the evidence of Scripture. But when people do give him money, he almost just says, you know what, I thank God. Because he waits. He says, you know what, God will provide for all of my needs. If God gives to you, it's because the Holy Spirit has inspired your heart to give. So he thanks God for the funds. So here we see that there are two characteristics of a thanking minister. One is that he knows he's called by God. Second, he knows he's provided by God, and he's provided by God through God's people. He doesn't ask for it, but... God's people recognize that. This is what God's people need to know. And the third characteristic is this. Third mark of a the minister, he knows that he is sustained by God. Sustained by God. Verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Paul comes to the end with this. He says, you know, even though I deserve, even though there's a right for pastors to be paid and to be compensated and to be able to live off the donation or the offering of the congregation, but he said, I have not. I have not made use of this right. I did not even made it known to you, but rather we endure anything and everything than to put, than rather to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. If people don't come up and say, you know what, Pastor, you are doing this for the money. Apostle Paul, you're doing this for the money. You just want money. Paul says, you know what, to even avoid that kind of conversation, I'm just going to work. I'm just going to work. Paul everywhere asks money for other people. He's not ashamed to do it. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9, he asked money for the saints in Jerusalem. But as for himself, he worked. He worked. This is characteristic. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. He says this, this is his pattern of life. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work day and night so that we not, might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Work day and night. I work during the day as a tent maker. At night, I'm here serving at the church so that I would not be a burden to anyone. And this is a characteristic of a good pastor because ultimately a pastor serves not because the money is given to him. A pastor serves the church because God called him. You cannot do it. A pastor is not here. And a pastor cannot consider himself as a pastor simply because he's paid to be a pastor. That's a hired hand. That's not a pastor. That's not a true shepherd. A true shepherd is here because God calls him to be here. Jesus even mentioned this in John chapter 10, verse 12. He said this, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees while the wolf t- snatches them and scatters them. That's what the higher hand does. You know what? I'm not being paid, so therefore I can't be, I'm not going to be here anymore. Please, whenever something difficult happens, runs away. But a true shepherd will do this no matter what. See, a great illustration is that of George Mueller. George Mueller is a pastor back in the 1800s, a tremendous character of faith. He picked up this church. A church called him to be his pastor called the Gideon Chapel, and the church says, you know what? We don't have the money to pay you because a fledgling congregation, small congregation, so George Miller said, you know what? I'm not going to get paid. I will not take a salary from the church. But what I can do is this. Anybody who, and the church will take offering, but anybody who has something extra, they want to give, I put a little box in the back of the church. The pastor's love offering and just put something in there and um, whatever is in that box, I'll take home to be my living expense. Just trust God. Say, I'm going to walk by faith. That God calls me to be here, I will be here. And you know what? God sustained him. He said, you know what? That box, which is in the back of the room, is it gets empty every three to four weeks. He said, I don't know why it gets empty every three to four weeks. Perhaps they thought that it's so little that they just want to empty it over a period of time. He wishes that they would give it to him every week, but they don't because it's so little. They just felt embarrassed that they gave it to him if it's every week. So they gave it to him every three to four weeks. And one time he saw a young man open that box and, and a deacon open that box and take the money out. And he was at his last call. "Is England, this is cold. He said, You know what? I'm going to get that money. I'm going to. To support my family, I going to buy these things for my family. You know what? That person didn't give him the money, so he could have gone to that person and said, "You know, what? where is the money?" But he knows that he didn't do that. He said "No, I'm gonna pray." So he prayed to God. I said, "God, please incline the heart of this person to give me the money." And the man did eventually, and said, "I was down to my last call, and God provided." Now some people think, "Well, this is taking it too far, George Mueller. You take it too far." Some people criticize him. It's like, you know, it's like wow, can you do that? But you know what? This is a good pastor. It's a good pastor because he stays away from the love of money. He knows that if God calls him to be here, God is going to provide. We're not here because God provided the money. We're here because God calls us to be here. That is the work of a pastor. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 3 says this, We're not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money cannot love money. You cannot be dictated by money at all. You're dictated by God and His calling for your life. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 through 6 says this, we're to keep our life, and this is for all of us, but for pastors specific, he says this, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. See, that's what true freedom is like. If you are free from the love of money, if you would content with what you have, you don't have to be afraid of no one because God will provide. So many times pastors are afraid. They have this donor coming in, right? This donor is going to give a lot of money. He's okay, we're going to make this donor happy. You have this person coming in, this person with this size salary. Says, okay, better not just offend this person, this board member, this person, whatever, right? Better not offend this person. Better keep my mouth shut. no. Pastors want we speak God's word no matter what. Say what is God saying. You're not fear. You will not be in fear of them if you're content with what you have. The Lord is your helper, He will provide for you. This is a hard attitude of a true pastor in the Lord. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 says this No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one or love the other, or he would be devoted to the one, despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. You can't. You have to serve God and God alone, especially for pastors. As far as the congregation is concerned, we need to understand our responsibility. Galatians chapter 6, verse 6 says this, that the one who's taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. The congregation need to be made aware of its responsibility as well. And I can say, honestly, our congregation has done a tremendous job. We have done a great job. Every year when the budget passed around and people who are members get to see that budget, we take tremendous amount of faith to care for the staff members who are here. We're not a large congregation by any means. We're not a wealthy congregation by any means. But you can see in our budget the faith which we have to care for the people who work here as staff. And to that, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for what this congregation has done to allow for myself, my wife, and other ministerial staff to be here to serve. We've done a great job. But this is a commendation. And so you know, as you read this passage, as we study this passage, you will understand this is a commendation for our church. So here we see three characteristics for well, authentic ministers of God. First, I think the minister is one who's called by God. Second, they're provided by God, and third, they're sustained by God. However way we're serving, however way we're giving to the Lord, we're to die to ourselves. That's what Jesus said. In John chapter 12, verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. We need to die to ourselves. If you're volunteering here, yes, your work sacrifice for the Lord is you dying to yourself. If we're serving here in some kind of staff position, you're giving more than what you're paid, right? You're giving your volunteering time as well. You're, 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 you're being provided for so that you can eat and drink. Outside of that, you're also giving time. Right, all of us while working here, we're giving more than what we're paid for to do. Because we're also dying to ourselves. We're here to see God's church grow. Second Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, this six says this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. We are to sow bountifully for the kingdom of God. as we do so, however gifts and ability, finances God's given to you. You have to give back to the Lord. Luke chapter 12, verse 48, we see this instruction from God. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. From him to whom they entrusted much, they will be demanded more. However way the Lord's given to you, we have to give accounting for it. And may God's response to us when we see him again be that of good and faithful servant. Welcome to the joy of the master let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this sobering message. It's not a message perhaps I would normally preach, but it is in the Bible, and we thank you that we have an opportunity to talk about it. We pray, Father, that as we are um, discussing this, because it's in your word, it's important that your Holy Spirit lead us and guide us to be the church that you are calling us to be. We thank you again for your grace in this matter. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.